Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Buffy St. Marie is addressing questions about her indigenous ancestry. Documents uncovered in a Fifth Estate investigation contradict her long-standing claims to be Cree born in Saskatchewan. If this is true, Buffy St. Marie has appropriated or stolen the stories of some of the most vulnerable in our society. To those who question my truth, I say with love, I know who I am. A narrative challenged the emotional cost of casting doubt on Buffy St. Marie. That's coming up on day six. Today, a botched blockade. No horizon, no hope, no freedom. Why the containment of Gaza was a failure. A tragedy in the Sioux. You know it's going to happen again. How communities can fight intimate partner violence. And Christmas rom-coms look north. Who's ready for some eggnog? Why so many Hallmark movies are Canadian made. All today on day six, the wholesome snow globe of life edition. If there's one single thing I'm trying to do for the Indians as a composer, it's to inform the white community and explain the way things really were, because I, I think that it's about time that we start to raise a generation of Canadian kids and American kids who realize that nations like individuals make mistakes and that mistakes must be corrected if proper and straight growth is ever to be resumed. And, and so what I'm trying to do is to inform the people. That's Buffy St. Marie on CBC Television in 1966. For half a century, she's been an icon of Indigenous music and activism who identified as an Indigenous person herself. In Canada, we had something that's sometimes a little bit later referred to as the big scoop, where Native children were removed from the home. They're assigned a birthday. They're assigned kind of a biography. So in many cases, adoptive people don't really know what the true story is. But an investigation published yesterday by CBC's The Fifth Estate makes the case that Buffy St. Marie doesn't actually have any Indigenous heritage. In the investigation, members of Buffy St. Marie's family say she was born to a white family in Massachusetts. Buffy was not adopted. She was a child of my grandfather's and my grandmother's. You know, I I don't know how or when she started to create her story. But at this point, she's just raised in a Caucasian family. The investigation presents what appears to be a shifting narrative about Buffy St. Marie's early life. These stories, just multiple, multiple stories that can't all live together. I, I was just like, it just didn't add up. You know, it just sounded fake. And the CBC's Jeff Leo tracks down Buffy St. Marie's birth certificate and presents it as evidence she was born in Massachusetts, not Saskatchewan. Am I understanding this right? Her name is Buffy St. Marie now? Yeah, right. And she's a folk singer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she says she was born in Canada and that these people adopted her? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, not true. (laughs) 
Yeah. In a letter to the CBC, a lawyer representing Buffy St. Marie said she had never personally misrepresented her ancestry or any details about her personal history to the public, and that any perceived inconsistencies can be explained by the truth. Jean Taillé is a Métis writer and lawyer who is also the great-grandniece of Louis Riel. Last fall, she wrote a report called Indigenous Identity Fraud for the University of Saskatchewan. She's one of the people the Fifth Estate spoke to during its investigation, though she has not seen all the evidence gathered by the team. Jean, welcome to Day 6. Hi, Brent. You've been dealing with the issue of identity theft for years. Did you ever think you'd be talking about Buffy St. Marie? Not in a million years. You were one of the people that the CBC's Fifth Estate program spoke to for their segment on her identity. She's a beloved, hugely respected figure. Who is going to be hurt most by the revelations in this program? Well, first and foremost, the major hurt will be to Buffy herself. Her credibility will take a hit. That's sad. Personally, I find it very sad. Um, And everybody else who is Indigenous um, is going to take a hit because people's trust has been damaged and they will question everyone now. And so this kind of story, uh, I think it has deep, deep feelers that spread out into not just the Indigenous community, but the non-Indigenous community. It, it damages our faith and trust. And what are the implications of that damage to Indigenous communities? I saw people online talking about this, saying it's going to divide our communities. How will that happen? How will that unfold? I tend to think that what it will do is some people will dismiss it immediately because they'll say, oh, it's just the media. Other people will um, not want to believe because they love Buffy. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit, I'm in that bucket myself. I just find it hard to believe because I love Buffy. I've grown up listening to her music. I think she's been phenomenal voice. Um, it's hard. It's very hard for people. Uh, there, are, there are some people who say, you know, don't expose um, people uh, who are so-called pretendians. Others will question the evidence. Um, other people who just refuse to listen and other people will go, oh, I knew it all along. It'll divide people, but it will divide them not into equal halves. Hmm. This is a huge case, but it is not the only case. And there is a scale here that I think would surprise a lot of people who are listening. How many instances of Indigenous identity theft do you believe exist right now in Canada? Uh, Dr. Kim Tallbear, who's a woman I greatly admire, and also because she comes out of the STEM world and doesn't throw around numbers lightly, she has estimated that as many as 25% of the academics who are identifying as Indigenous are fakes. That's a shocking number. And I think if Kim's right, we have to look at other institutions like the federal government and provincial governments, corporations and other institutions who have been busily trying to indigenize. So on the other hand, when you're looking at the hunting and fishing realm, uh, there's much more clear data. I'd say in the last 20 years, we have over 100 new organizations that have sprung up, most of them from Ontario East. And in those organizations. One alone has 90,000 people. Another one has 40,000 people. I would say you're talking about 
125,000 people in those sort of hunting and fishing organizations. If you add that to what Kim's talking to, I think you're talking about a quarter of a million people in Canada who have recently taken on an Indigenous identity to which they have no right or at best um, the most tenuous claim that is not validated by anybody. And those numbers are staggering. When we look at high-profile cases, like the one that you investigated uh, in the case of Dr. Kerry Barassa mm-hmm. at the University of Saskatchewan, there is very often a record of their past, of their achievements, of things that they've said, sometimes contradictory things. When we have a high-profile case like that, what do you look for? What do you identify when you're trying to uncover Indigenous identity fraud? I'm looking for facts, first of all. That's the number one thing that I'm looking for, is what are the facts of the situation? You know, uh, do they have any right to claim to be Indigenous? Um, you know, you're looking for what their ancestral background on is, but that's only one part of it. So this is not just a racial analysis. So Indigenous peoples are nations, so they have the right to determine who their own members are. So that means that people can't just jump up and say, oh, I'm Cree, mm-hmm. if the Cree themselves don't accept you. We saw that recently in Manitoba with Kevin Klein, who was a conservative MLA who just lost his seat in the recent election that elected Wub Canoe. And Kevin Klein was claiming for years that he was Métis, but the Manitoba Métis Federation said, no, you're not. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. Don't, mm-hmm. you don't have any Indigenous ancestry. You don't fit us at all. We don't accept you. So that's important if the nation themselves says no. So I look for... Uh, connections to the community. I look for facts of their birth, of their ancestry. I look for inconsistent stories. And they leave records. Like there's massive records behind, especially in this day of social media. So for the last 20 years or so, there are YouTube videos of these people talking in public, um, you know, statements on social media. They're all over the map. They're recorded everywhere. And so I look for anything that accords with any kind of reasonable fact. And in the same way that I do when I'm doing any kind of criminal law case or anything like that, I add up the story. I don't go in with a preconceived notion. I just go in saying, okay, look at this, look at that, look at this, look at that. Add this up, gather all the information, and then sort it to see what it tells me in the end. I don't know any other way of doing this. But you have to know enough to dig under the documents, right? So you might find a birth certificate. Well, can you rely on it? Or is it possible that that person was adopted and that birth certificate isn't the actual story? Can you get at the adoption records? In some provinces like Manitoba, you can. Mm -hmm. In provinces, you can't. Um, So it really depends on what you can access and how much you have to guess at it or how much you can actually make a pretty straightforward case. Buffy St. Marie has done an immense amount of work advocating for Indigenous people for decades. Until this week, that work would have been a big part of her legacy. What's her legacy now? I don't know. Um, So I just want to say right off the top, I have no idea whether this expose of Buffy is right or not. I have no inside information on it, right? I didn't do any work on it myself. So all I'm saying is 
from my experience with these past exposés is that they damage people. Um, Buffy has retired already, I believe, due to ill health. Mm-hmm. She's in her 80s. She's going to take a reputational hit, and I'm very sorry about that. I really am. I, You know, it, when I heard about it first, I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut. So it's the the whole thing. I hate them all. I hate all these exposés. Um, I think the issue needs to be dealt with. I'm not sure this is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. I, in fact, I think it's probably not the best way to do it. But I imagine that Buffy's upset and that the people in Pie Pot are upset and all the people who love Buffy are upset. So no one's coming out of this laughing. But among the people, the indigenous people who love Buffy, who identify with her, who have claimed her in some cases, do you do you believe that they'll stand by her? I think some of them will. Um, some people will stand by Buffy to the end. Others will stand by her even if they have some doubts. And other people will not care. And And other people will maybe say, well... I still think that what Buffy was saying in her songs and in her music was so important that I think people should listen to it. And therefore, if she, whether she is or is not, I'm not going to say anything about that or care about that because I want that message heard. There's no neat divisions here, Brent. Well, you told me earlier that you grew up listening to her music. When you listen to her music now, Jean, will it sound different to you? I don't think it'll sound different. No, I don't think so. I think I'm one of the people who think that her message was great. And I I do know that she was adopted by Pie Pot. Um, That doesn't necessarily make her Indigenous if she wasn't already. It just means she's adopted by Pie Pot and they um, appreciate her and love her. Um, You know, I'll probably still keep listening to her because the music will transcend whatever. Jean Taillet, thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Jean Taillé is a Métis writer and lawyer who is also the great-grandniece of Louis Riel. Earlier this week, the Piapot family issued a statement to the Fifth Estate saying, Buffy is our family. We chose her and she chose us. We claim her as a member of our family and all of our family members are from the Piapot First Nation. To us, that holds far more weight than any paper documentation or colonial record-keeping ever could. In her report for the University of Saskatchewan, Jean Taillé has said that while adoption into a community is significant, it doesn't give someone Indigenous ancestry. In a public statement on Thursday, Buffy St. Marie called the Fifth Estate's allegations deeply hurtful. She continues to claim an Indigenous identity. You can watch the Fifth Estate's investigation into Buffy St. Marie on CBC Gem and on the Fifth Estate's YouTube channel, The digital file is on cbc.ca. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Many in Sudan now hope the processes will succeed because as fighting continues, there is fear that it could spread further across the country, displacing more people. The warring factions in an ongoing deadly conflict in Sudan have resumed peace talks this week, though U.S. officials say it's too early to discuss a permanent resolution. Talks between the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group began on Thursday in Saudi Arabia, 
They're trying to open unhindered humanitarian access, as well as negotiate a potential ceasefire. But previous truces have been consistently violated. More than 9,000 people have died since the conflict began in April. About 5.6 million people have been displaced. And Ottawa Senators forward Shane Pinto has been suspended for 41 games for betting on sports. The NHL says its investigation found there is no evidence Pinto bet on NHL games, but hasn't released any more details. The NHL's collective agreement prohibits gambling on NHL games, but doesn't say anything about other sports. Pinto has apologized. He is currently a restricted free agent whose rights belong to Ottawa, but does not have a contract and has not yet played this season. Still to come on day six, the astonishing failure of the Gaza blockade and how it leads to the present moment. I'm Brent Bambury. Halloween is almost here, and that means there's a fresh crop of horror movies in the theaters and on streaming services everywhere. Even if you're not a horror fan, you've probably heard of the Saw franchise. Maybe you heard about the character who had to reach her bare hand into a vat of acid, or, well, you get the idea. The point is, these movies are brutal and gory, and that's pretty much the only point. And that means they've got some gruesome and squeam-inducing sound to match. Matt Thibodeau and Tess Moyer are the people responsible for creating many of those ugly sounds. They work at Urban Post Production in Toronto, and they're the Foley artists for Saw 10. We asked them to tell us how they created the sound effects for one of the goriest movies out there. Hi, my name's Matt Thibodeau. My name's Tess Moyer, and we did the Foley for Saw 10. I'd like to play a game. When we were told that we were going to be working on Saw 10, I was a little nervous because I actually don't do super well with gore. If you know anything about Saw, it's all about body dismemberment. You have the ability to not only save your soul today, but your sight. So, you know, coming up with the gory sounds of brains, guts, The first time I saw the movie, I was scared for a few different reasons. One, because horror is definitely something that uh, keeps me up at night, but also the scale of the project was something that I had never worked on before. So it was really nerve-wracking to think of how am I going to make these sounds? How am I going to recreate what's happening on the screen? Foley has gone back since basically sound was created for film so there's so many different trial and error that has been passed on and passed on that by the time I came into this job people would tell me like you're gonna use celery for breaking bones and then adding in my own spin on things like I think it's in the trailer the fingers being snapped back sometimes I like to just try and be authentic and Anything like that is just me cracking my neck or my fingers. I happen to have uh, very creaky joints, so that helps a lot, actually, with different horror movies. One of the main sounds that was a real challenge was the doll that's on a tricycle, which is an iconic saw sound. An old, creaky, horror-ish movie-sounding tricycle 
it's not so easy to find, like even looking through Craigslist or whatever. There was not a lot there. And if you found a vintage one, it was in really good condition and it would be like $100. I was just going through the Value Village trying to find something. And then it was like the, the, the choir sound, like, oh, just appeared. And then there was this the little grocery cart. And it has a couple of handles that turn, and that's what that is. There's some wheels on it. And of course, you know, there's people shopping there and looking at you strangely the whole time. I find now going through thrift stores is really difficult because I'm sitting there picking up items and knocking on them or like hitting them against the floor to see how they sound. And I get a lot of weird looks from different passerbys because most people don't really think about Foley or what goes into it. There was a scene where there was a brain that needed to be cut into, and then the scalp needed to be removed. Place a big enough piece of your cerebral tissue into the glass enzyme tank. This will save your life. Making the sound of a hand digging into the brain was really a challenge. First thing that comes to mind is like, do we use jello? Might be too soft or it might be too wet. Okay, we need a wet element. Sometimes a wet chamois or a wet cloth that you squish can kind of make a bit of that sound. But what ended up working really well for that was putting your hand into the guts of an orange and, and using that. The other thing we had discussed was would meat work, for, like some raw chicken work for that, which, I mean, we used raw chicken for a lot of other things. Luckily, that was more your job than mine. I got out of that a little bit. Yeah, one of my jobs, uh, I luckily lived close to a butcher at the time, so I actually got to go pick up some raw chicken. I got some um, pig intestines. Didn't make the room smell great, and there was a lot of making our own blood, actually. So any scene that involved blood and organs, I would come out up to my elbows in, like, just gross raw meat, sand, dirt, mud, cornstarch. All yeah, the worst things yeah. you want on your hands. And uh, I would just be rushing to go wash them, and everyone would just clear out of the way because they knew we were working on saw. There were a few times when I was working on it where I had to take a break just to go outside, get some air. Especially when you're recording the sound, when it's right in your ear, it's almost like the worst ASMR that you can be going through because you're listening to the sound of guts and blood and everything. Even though you're creating those sounds, it still feels really real. I had to just look down and remember this is just an orange, this isn't someone's brain, this is just some like raw chicken this isn't someone's leg being broken and just sort of ground myself that way matt thibodeau and tess moyer are foley artists at urban post production in toronto I was born in Gaza. Then uh, we visited with my with my mother and my sister every summer. It was a uh, quite a, a beautiful experience to go back home 
and be with your family and be in a full house, something that I'm not used to as a Palestinian in exile, as, a, as an immigrant here. That's Hamam Farah, a psychotherapist in Toronto. He visited Gaza regularly with his family until the second Palestinian Intifada in the early 2000s. In 2007, Israel imposed a blockade on Gaza, preventing Hamam from returning home. The elderly passed away one by one, so I couldn't see my grandparents. One last time, I uh, couldn't see uh, my great aunts and uncles. A lot of my extended family uh, stayed in Gaza. My aunt, who's my mother's younger sister, she is the main character in our story here because she's always the one that would update us on what's going on and what their experience is when Israel bombards Gaza. And this time she had to flee her home uh, for the first time. Her husband and um, her, her, steps, her stepchildren had to flee their homes too. So they all went into the St. Porfirio's Orthodox Church. That's where I was baptized as a kid. For a while, Hamam's family stayed safe in the church with other displaced Gazans. But last week, an Israeli airstrike hit the church compound, killing 18 people and injuring at least 20. One of those killed was my step-cousin, my, my aunt's uh, stepson. And he was 35 years old. His name was Sulaiman. He's married to Lily. And she was pulled out of the rubble with serious injuries. She has a broken jaw, broken hip, and a broken back. Um, and I can't imagine what her children, their two boys, must be going through. It's heartbreaking. You know, I, I would be shedding some tears right now, but I've, I've told the story to other media outlets enough times that it, I'm starting to feel desensitized, to be honest with you. Hamam still contacts his aunt in Gaza whenever she's able to access the internet. Yesterday, Israel's heaviest airstrikes yet knocked out internet and phone communication. This morning, the Israeli military says its forces are still in Gaza and that it is expanding its ground operations there. You know, I asked, how are they doing? And she, she just uh, said they're alive. They were living on cans of tuna and dried pasta, I, I believe. See, my, my family doesn't qualify to receive um, international aid. We're not refugees. Um, we're, we're the what they call the original inhabitants of Gaza. Um, and that's why we don't qualify for international aid. So my family members have to rely on whatever income they had and groceries that they bought. I'm not sure how they, how they did it and how they rationed it. Hamam Farah is a psychotherapist from Gaza who now lives in Toronto. For the last 16 years, he's been unable to visit his family there because of Israel's blockade on the territory. The blockade has had a devastating impact on people living in Gaza. The International Committee of the Red Cross and many human rights groups consider it to be illegal. From Israel's perspective, its policy of blockading Gaza was meant to make Israel safer. But after the highly coordinated attack by Hamas on October 7th, some Israelis are looking for other options. Dahlia Shindlin is a Tel Aviv-based writer and political analyst. She's in New York City this week. Dahlia, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you for having me. In 2007, Israel has just pulled out of Gaza. Hamas has won the election there, and Israel imposes a blockade of Gaza. What did Israel hope to achieve, and what were the objectives behind that blockade? 
The first thing Israel said it wanted to achieve was security. Israel always says that the security is the main reason for its policies with relation to the Palestinians. But I think early on, it was also pretty clear that there was a political aim uh, in the sense that you could say that for the sake of security, Israel did not want Hamas in power. And the blockade, in many ways, openly at the time, fairly openly, I wouldn't say anybody said it explicitly, but it seemed quite clear that it was intended to put pressure on Hamas that if they had a hard time governing and if their people couldn't uh, have basic services, the kinds of things we take for granted, you know, water, fuel, electricity, were all restricted after that. And I think the hope was that people would rise up and rebel against Hamas and put pressure on Hamas. Now, of course, what generally happens is that people got angry at Israel uh, because they are aware that Israel is really the, the, the actor making those policy decisions and making their lives very difficult. That, but it's important to keep in mind that there were always these political aims, a form of political pressure on Hamas, which ultimately, of course, didn't work. And, and, and it didn't work, as we saw, because weapons were used against Israel on the 7th and the weapons somehow got through the blockade. How did the closure fail to keep weapons and money from getting to Hamas? How come it increased their power? Let me say it's even worse than that, because ever since the closure policy began in 2007, there have been numerous rounds of fighting between Hamas and Israel in which Hamas fires hundreds or thousands of rockets. In other words, it's been able to stockpile those rockets over all of those years. And you know, Israel has convinced itself that it's capable of living with that kind of uh, attack on uh, civilians, mm. because these rockets are fired into civilian areas for all these years, because it has an, uh, a very effective missile defense system. But the residents of the southern communities in Israel never felt that way, because even this sophisticated missile defense system you know, gives them very little time to get to shelters, and oftentimes there are too many rockets for, the, for all of them to be intercepted, and they do damage. So Israel has been sort of living in an illusion that it's, it's okay to live with that level of, of threat and attack. Now, how do all of those munitions get in, despite what has become very severe control in such invasive ways. I mean, Israel, you know, really is capable of letting nobody in from Gaza except for the most restricted uh, exceptions. Very, very few people could move and all import, export, everything going and moving in and out had to be controlled and coordinated by Israel through its crossing. But there is one more crossing that is not controlled by Israel, and that's the crossing with Egypt called the Rafiah or Rafah border. And Hamas began digging a whole network of tunnels uh, mm-hmm. through to Egypt and also into Israel. Um, and over the years, both of those countries have essentially coordinated on the blockade and worked hard to destroy those tunnels at various times. Put it this way, Israelis and Israeli defense experts believe that most or the vast majority of those weapons came through Egypt. However, I got you know intimations that there might have been smuggling even across Israeli crossings, which would mean that even Israelis are implicated in this. Nobody seems to think that 100% of these materials came in through Egypt alone. Oh, oh, but each time there was any kind of an attack originating from Gaza, there's evidence that the blockade policy wasn't working. So did Israelis continue to support the closure and blockade policy as they witnessed that it wasn't working? Well, this is a complicated issue because, you know, the Israeli government doesn't ask the Israeli public what they think of the blockade. I happen to have conducted several surveys for a human rights organization called Gisha, which works particularly on the issue of freedom of movement. Primarily, they focus on Gaza. And they asked me to ask Israelis questions about this. When we ask them, you know, when we explain the policy and ask them if they think this kind of policy could also backfire because it would make Gazans angry or more extremist or drive them into the hands of the extremists and thereby you know, threaten Israelis, that a very large portion of Israelis agreed with that. But I think most of the time, that's not the argument they were hearing. If anything, uh, Israelis remembered Gaza when there was rocket fire. Mm-hmm. They didn't really think about it in between those rounds of rocket fire. And, and when there's rocket fire, then Israelis say, 
they're a bunch of terrorists, we need to keep tight control over them, I guess there's nothing you can do. Uh, but did they really take deep interest and understand the nature of the closure and understand just how powerfully it destroyed various elements of the Palestinian economy, for example, mm -hmm. and made regular life hard? I don't think most Israelis gave that too much attention. Meanwhile, money is being funded to Hamas through Qatar with the tacit approval of, of the Israeli government, and the people are living in misery. And then in an article you wrote for Haaretz, you quote Middle East expert Sfee Barel, and he told you, from the military perspective, the closure was meaningless, and that instead, Israel began to use it for political leverage. What does he mean by that? Yeah, he meant, given how much weaponry was able to come through, it doesn't seem like this was the most effective policy, although it did have an incredibly... Uh, you know, negative effect on the Palestinian population in Gaza. And as you correctly point out, the real paradox is that Netanyahu himself gave the approval to this Qatari channel of allowing funds, massive funds, to go to Hamas to enable them to essentially dig in their position and maintain a sort of stability, a kind of equilibrium, that even if Israel were to pound Gaza, through, mostly through air campaigns, every so often if there was an escalation of rocket fire, that they would essentially be able to rebuild and continue governing. And Netanyahu, by all accounts, wanted that policy in order to create a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority, led by Fatah, the major rival of Hamas, make sure that Hamas had little incentive to reconcile with Fatah, and there have been various attempts over time, and make sure that the Palestinian leadership remained so deeply divided that nobody could realistically say to Netanyahu, go into a peace process mm -hmm. with the Palestinians. The response of any Israeli for the last you know, 15 years has been, which Palestinians? Because the leadership is so divided. And the policy of keeping Hamas just strong enough with the Qatari money and not actually routing them from Gaza maintain that division. Division of the political leadership was the heart of Netanyahu's policy. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the state of Gaza will be when this military operation concludes, and we likewise don't know what the political climate in Israel will be. But do you see a return to the closure and blockade as something that's possible as, as a strategy going forward? I think it would be very unfortunate if the government that presided over this disaster, that presided over most of that time, I mean, this is really a, a policy that has been led for almost 15 years. I mean, Netanyahu didn't start the policy. He didn't start the closure, but he did implement the policy of keeping Hamas at that level where it was strong enough to attack Israel, uh, not weak enough to collapse entirely. And I think that the return to that whole concept would be I, frankly, inconceivable to me because of what's happened to prove just what a failure it was. However, there are limited options. I mean, the only options that really are on the table is that either Israel reoccupies the Gaza Strip entirely, which I think everybody, including the Israeli government and people, think would be a disaster, mm -hmm. if it's even possible. Uh, bringing back the Palestinian Authority into Gaza, which is pretty much equally a disaster and impossible because Netanyahu's policies also uh, were very firmly committed to undermining mm -hmm. the Palestinian Authority, to weakening the Palestinian Authority. And so the Palestinian Authority, largely of its own accord too, let's face it, there was rampant corruption among the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinians are very, very angry. 80% uh, of them think the Palestinian Authority is corrupt. You know, um, over 70% of them would like Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to resign. Mm -hmm. So both of those options are bad. Uh, the other option, some sort of, you know, uh, involvement of international actors, whether it's Arab states or Western countries, I, nobody really knows what form that would take yet. I don't even know what it would look like. There's lo not a lot of incentive for these external actors to do that. But the idea of simply going back to the way things were on October 6th, I can't see how anybody would think that that makes sense. Uh, but I cannot speak for the Israeli government. Dalia Shenlin, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me.
Dahlia Shindlin is a writer and political analyst. Still to come on day six, why the way we talk about intimate partner violence could save people's lives. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts. Also at cbc.ca slash day6. You blockhead! You kept me up all night waiting for the great pumpkin. And all that came was a beagle. I didn't get a chance to go out for trips or treats. And it was all your fault. What a fool I was. I could have had candy, apples, and gum. And cookies and money and all sorts of things. Okay, I don't know where they're giving out money for Halloween, but I need that address. I'm working on a costume. And I've forgotten how mad Sally gets about wasting her night sitting in a pumpkin patch waiting for the great pumpkin. So be warned, Halloween is still three days away. Don't be a Sally, or a Linus for that matter. But while this weekend may be filled with lots of Halloween-themed fun, over on the W Network, they've moved on to other holidays. Who's ready for some eggnog? Yes, it's Christmas. Well, it's not actually Christmas for another 58 days. But the annual syrupy holiday movies have begun. In fact, the movies started airing last weekend. And I think you'll find that in Hallmark movies, they yell a lot less than Sally. Remember Chris Silver? You two had the biggest crush on him. What was that phrase you used to say? Never been Chris! This last week with you has been the happiest i felt in a while. Okay. <laughs> Tell yourself whatever you need to feel better, sweetie. I told you I was going to cry. Well, this is very exciting. I can't wait to see what the two of you come up with. We won't let you down. That last clip you heard from Under the Christmas Sky, that was filmed in Canada, in Winnipeg, in fact. A little more than half of Hallmark's holiday movies were filmed in Canada. And there's a big reason for that. It's more affordable to produce quality content in Canada than it is in the United States. And therefore, the vast majority of Christmas movies are made in Canada. That's Jesse Prupus. I'm the senior vice president of scripted at Muse Entertainment. Jesse's based in Montreal, and Muse Entertainment makes a variety of films, including romantic comedies, mysteries, and true crime. But the holidays are a big part of their work. Christmas is a very big part of our focus as producers. In, in terms of our own company's slate, Christmas represented possibly 50% of the movies that we made this year. And like Hallmark movie fans, or Hallmarkies, Jesse also looks forward to the countdown to Christmas. 
Absolutely. Um, every year, the Christmas season is a, a tremendously exciting time for us Canadian television producers. We produce a lot of movies for the networks like Hallmark and Lifetime that air these movies and Netflix as well. And they are just a joy to produce. They're feel-good stories. They're romantic. And we have an amazing time making them. Jesse was a producer for the film adaptation of Life of Pi, but his company Muse has produced a lot of Hallmark films. It's very different on a Hallmark film. They're significantly uh, smaller in terms of budget. The crews are smaller. The settings are more intimate. The experience is wonderful for the cast and the crew and the producers and the directors. We just have such a fun time and everyone is in a great spirit when making these. We're making these films to make people feel good. So we get to feel good while making them. And he says that beyond the fact that it's cheaper to make a film here, there are other reasons Canada makes a great backdrop for holiday films. We're blessed to have some of the best talent in the world for making these kind of films. We're, we have a very diverse population. We have talented writers and directors. And we have some fabulous locations to film these movies in, be it filming in Ottawa or Hamilton or Victoria or Halifax. All of these small to medium-sized Canadian cities are the perfect places for making these films. They offer brilliant architecture, cozy main streets. They're picturesque and gorgeous and perfect for this kind of movie making. And filming here brings a few perks for Canadians. The first great benefit for Canadians is that it's a showcase of our talent and our country to the world. These films air internationally and in the United States. They're very successful and it's a way of showing how great the people are that we get to work with here in, in Canada. Um, that's the first benefit. I think there is also a tremendous economic benefit in terms of jobs and ancillary benefits to hotels and airlines and all the suppliers that we use, camera, grip, electric, all of these suppliers get used in our, our films and the economic benefits are, are very, very large for them. And last year, 95% of the directors were Canadian. And you know that square on your Hallmark bingo card about going skating or playing hockey? Well, there's a reason why so many of your favorite lead actors can skate. They're often Canadian too. One of last year's biggest hits, Three Wise Men and a Baby, had three Canadian men as its stars. Paul Campbell, Tyler Hines, and Andrew Walker. Within the Canadian industry, these films serve as both a place of steady employment, but also a place for developing new talent, be it writers or directors. We had the good fortune earlier this year to produce a film called Ice Palace Romance, and our director was a first-timer Canadian director named Shauna Steele. The film was also written by a first-time writer, a Canadian guy named Andrew Daly. So there's an, uh, an example of us taking talented individuals and giving them a shot to make their first movie. Hallmark's viewership hits its peak in December. Last year, they averaged 1.3 million U.S. viewers in the month leading up to Christmas. And yes, the films are formulaic and predictable, but what's your point? That's actually a big part of their draw. There can be some very dark television to watch these days, and Hallmark offers a comfy, 
cozy place where there's always going to be a happy ending and there's always going to be a great romance and it's always going to end with a kiss. And I think viewers want that snackable entertainment that doesn't require too much thinking and just makes them feel good. Jesse Prupis is Senior Vice President of Scripted at Muse Entertainment. You can catch holiday movies this weekend on the W Network. It's all Christmas, all the time programming begins on Wednesday. in shock and we really don't know how to convey or to express anything. It's sickening. Residents of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario were left reeling this week after four people, including three children, were shot and killed on Monday night. Another person was injured and the perpetrator of the attack died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The police identified it as a case of intimate partner violence. I was horrified to hear about this latest instance of femicide and family homicide. And it made me think yet again how much work we still have to do. Elizabeth Renzetti is a Canadian journalist and author. She's reported extensively on gender-based violence and domestic abuse. She says that attacks like the one that happened this week in Sault Ste. Marie are too often treated as isolated private incidents rather than a shared public safety risk. And she's calling on police and public officials to do more to change that narrative. Elizabeth Renzetti, welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Let's talk about how the police responded to this shooting. On Tuesday, they said that the incident didn't pose an ongoing threat to public safety. The perpetrator of the attack was no longer at large. But those words rang hollow to you. Why? I've done a lot of reporting on intimate partner violence, domestic violence, gender-based violence, and I've seen over and over again that police use this sort of similar phrasing, police services across Canada. So they'll say either no risk to public safety or that it was an isolated incident. Both of those are, you know, strictly true in the most sort of absolute sense, but they're not true in the larger sense. There is an ongoing threat to public safety. There's an ongoing threat to all of the women and children who are facing these kinds of situations, this potential extreme violence. And when we don't acknowledge that, we continue this problem of seeing this kind of violence as a series of isolated incidents, which it's not. When when we do acknowledge it, then we're indicating that there is something going on in the society as a whole and that the society as a whole has a chance then to address this. But let's, let's talk about what the police chief in the Sioux did say. Hugh Stevenson said that he would welcome an inquest. He also made a point of referring to an intimate partner violence as an epidemic, echoing the federal government, which made a similar declaration in August. What do you make of that? Not only did he do that, but I was very pleased to see that he said it's not simply a private family matter, it's a societal matter. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about intimate partner violence. And I think that's so important that we recognize it as a public health issue. I I want to get some sense of, of how this works. How often does the violence spill over from a particular household into the broader community? Well, this is the really interesting thing. So we tend to talk about 
private violence, right? We call it domestic violence. Right there in the the root of the word, we're talking about something that occurs within a house, within Mm -hmm. a domicile. Mm -hmm. But it's never contained within just a house. Even if the the violence occurs between two people, most commonly between a man and his female partner, but it can also happen the other way and it can happen in same-sex relationships. But it spills out into the community in so many different ways. It affects the other members of the household. It affects the children or the other family members. It affects the community of people who surround this family. There's a huge economic cost to intimate partner violence. And in its most extreme cases, it involves innocent people in the community. So we saw that, for example, in the mass killings in James Smith Cree Nation and in Portapique in Nova Scotia, where acts of what was so-called private violence spilled out into the community and left many, many people dead. Those were all preceded by acts of domestic violence. Yes, exactly. And in the States, um, a study done less than 10 years ago showed that more than 50% of cases of mass killings in the United States either begin with an act of domestic violence or the perpetrator has been investigated for acts of intimate partner violence. And I would add that in Winnipeg, the man who was accused of killing four Indigenous women also had a lengthy record of intimate partner violence. So these are red flags. They're not recognized in the way they should be, either by society at large or or individuals. And it's just a huge and tragic problem. And how is it that this problem has been able to manifest so successfully for so long? I I was looking at the story of the inquiry right now, going on in in Quebec right now, for a a woman who who lost her life and and her her two children were also killed by her ex-husband. And she told the police that she feared for her life. So these red flags go up, but then they somehow are glossed over, they're, they're ignored, or, or, or there's not enough investigation. And, and yet it seems to be a pattern. Why, why is it allowed to be a pattern? Well, that's a huge and important question. And we could talk about, we really have to talk about this as a problem of male violence. It is, and it's mm-hmm. unpleasant and unpalatable to say it, uh, but it is. The vast majority of this violence is perpetrated by men and the most extreme violence is perpetrated. Uh, by men. So we have to look at the roots of misogyny in our culture and how those messages are spread. In the case of the Sioux, this man, the police admitted, had been investigated, they said, several times for acts of um, intimate partner violence. Again, the problem is we study these things endlessly after they've happened, and there is just not the political or social will to actually implement the kind of changes that we need in order to stem this violence. We should also say that the volume of cases is extraordinarily high and that every red flag probably can't be investigated or every person suspected of a potential violent act cannot be uh, surveilled. So, so can, can, can you just talk a little bit about how broad the threat of, partner, of intimate partner violence is in Canada? I, I have a statistic here that 80,000 victims of intimate par- partner violence appear in the Ontario court system annually, 80,000 a year. 80,000 a year. And consider this, when I did a series with my uh, colleagues, Molly Hayes and Tavia Grant at the Globe and Mail last year, we there was a statistic in there. So we included the 80,000 um, people in the court system in Ontario alone, in one year alone. And that is 
consider this, only 20% of people report their violence yes. to the police. Right. So if only 20% report their violence to police and we have 80,000 people in the system, how many cases are unrecognized and are not spoken about? We still have this absolute cone of stigma and shame around this kind of violence because it has been shrouded in this idea that it's private. Mm -hmm. you, you've said that police are reluctant to provide information when you're reporting on cases of intimate partner violence. What do you make of police reluctance to provide that information? I kind of understand a little bit the privacy issue, but it goes back to it. It perpetuates the idea that this is a shameful, stigmatized crime and that it is private and we shouldn't speak about it and we should not think about it. And that once these, you know, people have so sadly been buried that the issue is buried with them. And it's it's just not because it's going to happen again and we know it's going to happen again. Liz Renzetti, thank you very much for being with us. You're so welcome. Elizabeth Renzetti is a Canadian journalist and the author of the forthcoming book, What She Said, Conversations About Equality. Rift from the Headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, this is a recap. Here's last week's clue. The Pokemon theme, Jonathan Richmond and Vincent Van Gogh, and the Alan Parsons Project with Turn of a Friendly Card, and Hugh Campbell of Tobermory, Ontario, guessed the headline they were looking for. The Van Gogh Museum stops giving away Pokemon cards after fans cause a frenzy. Congratulations, Hugh. A Pikachu-sized Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Like a rock, I was something to see. Like a rock. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put rift from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag and you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. 
It's eight days to Guy Fawkes Day, three days to Halloween, and seven days till we meet again on day six. Okay, <laughs> tell yourself whatever you need to feel better, sweetie. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.